Conister Rocks. Hello and welcome to the programme which is all about music and memories. Each week we invite a guest to join us to tell us a little about themselves, their work and their favourite tracks. And you can find previous programmes in the Conister Rocks archive on manxradio.com. They include sports stars, musicians, politicians and as ever we would love to hear your suggestions as well. If there's someone you'd like to hear on the show you can email us. The address is womentoday at manxradio.com or you can text 166-177. So now let's meet today's guest, whose CV is extensive, I think it's fair to say. Um, career highlights include being a regular broadcaster on TVAM Breakfast, a contributor to BBC Television's Watchdog programme, and being the solicitor who represented the egg industry and sued Edwina Curry over the salmonella in eggs fiasco forcing her resignation in the late 1980s. And uh, one Boxing Day, when he was bored with the Christmas telly offerings, he started what became his first book, Case for Compensation. Now, more than a dozen books later, his love of travel, political intrigue, fascination with white-collar crime, wine, casinos, sport and Formula One racing have all been reflected in his writing. Douglas Stewart, it is a pleasure to welcome you to the Conister Rock. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Tremendous. going to assume that as a writer you would rather welcome the solitude of being left on your own somewhere? Yes, um, but on the other hand I need the stimulation of the news for new ideas for stories. That's, most of my stories come from something I've read and then distorting it and twisting it into a thriller. I have also spoken to authors in the past who say they are fairly methodical in the way they approach their work and I'm intrigued to know how you approach it. Are you very disciplined in the way you write? I'm disciplined in creating the the plot. I start with the idea and the new book is is about sports betting and match fixing and so on. So I start there and then I think well which characters will I need? The good and the bad and then I think of the ending. I was given the tip by a best-selling author a long time ago Gavin Lyle. And he said, if you know the ending, you will almost inevitably finish the book. So many writers have a brilliant idea and write brilliantly, but they run out of steam and you might call it writer's block. Is that something... They don't know where it's going and they start to meander. Is that something you've ever suffered from? Never. No, n- never at all. I suffer from lack of time. So how long would it take you, on average, to write one of your books? Under pressure from publishers, I wrote one in three months. But typically, with the research, it's about a two-year project. And that research is crucial, really, isn't it? Especially when you're writing the sort of books that you do. Yes, I I do like to try and keep as close to the reality as possible, even if it's fiction. Well, let's find out a little bit more about you then, Douglas Stewart. You were born in Glasgow, although you have no Scottish accent, because you moved to Folkestone in Kent at around the age of three. Um, What sort of memories do you have about your early childhood? I suppose one amazing memory was seeing my father for the first time. He appeared, he'd just been demobbed from the army, so I'd never seen him or not not to know him until I was about three and he turned up. And I can remember seeing him turn into the uh, short short uh, passageway into the house. And it was quite scary, actually, but uh, fabulous from then on. Did you have an awareness before that time that, that he was missing from your life? 
Not really. My mother was larger than life. I think she more than made up for him, actually. Um, something you say you inherited from your father is, um, can I put it gently, your lack of skill in the DIY department. Absolutely. My, my, my wife, Bridget, is brilliant. I am absolutely useless. My father cut off the corner of the table. He was making me a tunnel for the railway. He cut the corner of the table off by mistake and never lived it down. And I would be exactly the same. I'd probably take the legs as well. You say you'd rather move than fix something. Absolutely. A dripping tap. Time to move on. (laughs) Um, Something that I think many of us will know is that things that happen in our childhood can have a huge impact on us. And, you know, certainly if we can remember the emotions surrounding it. And at school, um, and, and outside of school occasionally, the fact that you were made to wear your school cap, blazer and tie had a huge impact on you. It did. My mother was wonderfully old-fashioned Glaswegian. She made me wear my prep school cap and tie, even when I was out playing football in the street with the, the other lads in Glasgow, where I went back till I was about 12. And I was always standing out. And once I met uh, the Scottish football team who were training... And I was there with all these young, almost street urchin types, wearing my best cap still. And one of the Scottish players said, did you get that cap playing for England? (laughs) (laughs) I can almost feel your mortification at that moment, Douglas. It was so humiliating to have to (laughs) always be dressed up. But my mother always wore a hat everywhere for everything, even to go shopping down in Sainsbury's. your Scottish roots clearly then very important to you. As I say, you don't have the accent. Did you ever have it? I did. Um, in England, they called me the little Scotsman, and in Glasgow, they called me the wee Englishman. <laughs> uh, tell us about the first piece of music that you've chosen. I've chosen Flower of Scotland because I feel uh, very Scottish at heart still. <clears throat> and when uh, Flower of Scotland sprung on the scene probably 20 or 30 years ago, it just made my blood run hot and cold and it still does it reminds me of so much <laughs> oh flower of scotland we see you're like again that fought and died for your wee hill and stood against him. Proud Edward's oldie and sent him home while they think again. The hills are bare now and autumn leaves lie thick and still. Or land that is lost
Scotland, Douglas Stewart's first track today, reflecting his Scottish roots. And it was while you were at school, Douglas, um, that you met an international thriller writer. Um, and that really did set you on the road to writing, although I'm, I wonder if you recognised the impact of that visit at the time. Do you know, it's an interesting question. I think it, yes, because it was very close. I'd met, I'd met one very famous writer when I was too young, Geoffrey Household, but I met, I met Hammond Innes when I was 17, and I was just going off to university, and having been inspired by his um, enthusiasm and, and the success he had had, I thought that would be great. So when I went on to university, I did start writing immediately, although I didn't start my first novel for about another eight years. We'll find out all about that in just a moment. We are on the Conister Rock with the author Douglas Stewart this afternoon. We'll be back in just a moment. The Mission Station, Manx Radio, Conister Rocks. This is Conister Rocks on Manx Radio and today we are joined by the author Douglas Stewart. And we've uh, been talking, Douglas, about the fact that you met um, while you were at school a couple of very well-known writers who, who you think may have set you on your path to writing, although it wasn't your immediate career choice. What was it you decided to do? For some strange reason, when I was 12, I told my father that I was going to be a lawyer. I had no idea why, um, but it was not a mistake. I've loved every minute of my career as a writer and as a lawyer. And in fact, your career as a lawyer, I think it's fair to say, has given you a, a great deal of material for many of your books. Absolutely. I, I suppose most of my career I was doing uh, litigation or international litigation and you see people at their best and their worst all human life was there and yes it provided a lot of inspiration but you say um while you were at university you did start writing you you wrote for the university newspaper newspaper that's right yes um did um quite a number of uh, probably about two and a half thousand word pieces at that time and then as uh Boxing Day came a few years later. I was just tired of TV repeats. I thought, I've got to get on and start writing now, and I never looked back. With the work that you wrote at university, I'm, I'm intrigued to know whether, first of all, whether you've still got any copies of those and if you can go back and read them, because some people find it very difficult to go back to, to a time when you were much younger and saw the world in, a, in perhaps a very, very different way and, and read what you wrote then. Yes, I've still got uh, quite a few of the pieces I wrote. Um, and I have reread them probably about 
two years ago I dusted them off and had a look to see what was there. A very different style of writing and obviously uh, some of it's quite cringeworthy, but, but there was some interesting material. Any usable material? Um, I, the most memorable one was uh, about um, suicide. Not because I was suicidal, I've never felt that way at all, but I, I wanted to get some feeling for, for what it must be like when the end is inevitable. I lay down beside a railway line to find out. And in the new book, Dead Fix, which is published this year, which I'm uh, promoting tomorrow in, in Ramsey, there is a suicide in that. And, and uh, so I hope that having had a near-death experience uh, beside a railway line, it gave me an insight into what these people must feel like to be driven to that awful moment. What was it that you think you learned about that? I thought that... Imagining that I was lying across the lines rather than beside them, that it was probably, except for the poor engine driver, a very good way to go because there's no turning back if you really are determined. I think it must be awful to um, want to die and then not get it right. Um, I'm not sure whether you get the worst of both worlds in that. And uh, so it, it was um, an extreme experience and a very silly thing to do. Let's uh, talk a little about your legal career. And you have been involved in some incredibly high-profile cases ranging from the very tragic to the almost unbelievable but it was in 1988 after the crash in the egg industry following the then junior health minister Edwina Curry's comments about British eggs causing salmonella that you represented British egg producers and I I wonder if you remember the moment that you were asked to take that on. Yes I do it was an introduction from an old friend of mine who, who said um, that he represented an egg company and he didn't do litigation I was then practicing in London and I met the chairman of the company and he said, give me 24 hours and I will rustle up the whole industry more or less. And so we we took it on and we issued a f stream of writs against Edwina Curry because she had said that the all the eggs in, in, in Britain, British eggs, were tainted with salmonella, which was just not correct. And Overnight, she more or less killed the British egg industry. It was a total disaster. And then she, instead of backtracking, repeated the comments three or four days later, uh, which was very silly. How aware were you of just how big this case was? Very aware. Um, I, I had an awful lot of media attention. And we had a lot of fun because... One of the uh, people objecting to having their hens slaughtered was a group of nuns led by a very fiery American who, who got her, her flock of nuns to barricade themselves in a hen house when the men of ag and fish came along to destroy the hens. And they wouldn't come out, and of course we were representing them as well. So we had so much fun with the media. It, it was hilarious. And we got a great result because... Uh, the government paid the egg farmers compensation. I mean, that must be an amazing thing to reflect on and, and know that you had such a pivotal role in that. 
Yes, it, uh, there was great satisfaction. It was a lot of fun, but it was wonderful to see the farmers get some redress because, you know, you think of the big companies that, that produce eggs, but there are an awful lot of mama and papa businesses and, and they were being destroyed. Let's pause for a moment and have your second piece of music. What have you chosen and why? I've chosen uh, You Are My Sunshine, sung by Johnny Cash. My <laughs> my father was a as bad a singer as he was a carpenter, but he sang uh, You Are My Sunshine to me when I was a child. Well, the other night, dear, as I lay sleeping, I dreamed I held you in my arms. When I awoke, dear, I was mistaken. And I hung my head and I cried. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. I'll always love you and make you happy So nothing else could come between Now you've left me to love another You have shattered all my dreams you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are great. You'll never know how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine. Johnny Cash, You Are My Sunshine. And Douglas Stewart, you met Johnny Cash on a few occasions. I did, by sheer chance. I, I, I was uh, very near a theatre in Bournemouth where he was performing and he came along and I recognised him, this man in a long black coat. And I said, oh, what a privilege to be able to say hello to you. And uh, he said, in his wonderful accent, oh, it's great to meet you, son. I'm glad you're coming to my show. You didn't try and do the accent there, Douglas. Sorry? You didn't try and do the accent there. Uh, no, I, no. Not, 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 not quite. <laughs> Although I lived in America for seven years and I, I can do a bit of the accent, I wouldn't want to imitate Johnny Cash. That would be an insult. Um, we're going to talk about somebody else um, that you met who had a real influence on the direction of your career and actually uh, is... Um, involved in something that you were also involved here in the Isle of Man, and that's Esther Ranson. Yes. Um, tell us what happened when you met her back in the 1980s. I had a, uh, a client who had had a breast implant that went tragically wrong. It was a real mess. She came to me to try and get compensation, and I thought that the story was very powerful, so I went to meet Esther, 
and we got on famously. It was a good story for her. Got justice for my client. Uh, we got a big compensation. And Esther and I got on so well. She said, "Would you like to come and be a consultant to the program, uh, working for That's Life?" And I said, "Well, yes, you bet." And so uh, I worked for nothing, uh, but. Um, it raised my profile enormously. I got a lot of very interesting stories to um, act upon and help them sort out what was a good story for them to run on their programme. What sort of highlights stick out for you? Because that programme had a huge influence at the time. It did. I mean, she she had this knack of, of having the talking dogs and strange-shaped uh, carrots to get the audience up but was then selling a very hard, punchy thing like motorway barriers. I, I, I was involved with that for her. Child seat belts, airbags, uh, primarily issues to do with safety. And I mentioned the fact that you were involved um, in something else that Esther Ransom was pivotal in introducing, and that is the Silver Line. Um, so did your friendship just has it that just continued with it Esther continued I, I played for her cricket team incredibly badly and uh, I've kept in touch with her for 30 years I suppose now and you know she is a human dynamo and when she was about 70 and after she had lost her husband Desmond uh, she 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 felt lonely and she she was um, not ashamed to say so and she decided she'd form the Silver Line for people who were lonely, whatever age. But there she was at the age of 70, starting what is now a massively successful charity. They can barely cope with the number of calls they're getting every day. Wonderful. And so I'm very privileged to be active in that uh, as chairman on the island here. We we actually did one of the pilots for the Silver Line here on the island. Um your TV career was not just restricted to That's Life. You had lots of other uh, roles in television programmes. How, how did they all go? Is that just by chance? Was it something that you sought out? Um, no, I didn't, no, I didn't think it out like that. It just happened. Um, I suppose once you start to get a bit of profile in the media, they, they cling on to you and other people did. So I got involved with... Um, TVAM as a, a timeshare pundit for them. Made a right hash of it, I did once too. Uh, I said, Oh, tell us more about that. <laughs> I, I, I cringe at the thought still. I said, There are three things you must remember. And I forgot the third thing. And the, the TV presenter was a bit of an idiot, actually. And he didn't bail me out. And I was there like a goldfish, wondering what to say, seeing my face on all the screens, not saying anything. And for about a month, everybody said, Come on, Doug, what was that third thing? And uh, so I've, I've learned a lesson. They never say there are three or four things in case you can't remember them. Do you remember that third thing now? Um, no, I can't, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's pause now again for your third piece of music. What have you chosen this time? This is, uh, I guess, uh, an out-and-out love song, really. Um, it's the hollies, the air that I breathe. Uh, no particular reason, I just have always loved the... The way the the, uh, the lyrics build up, very powerful. If I could make- 
The Hollies, the air that I breathe. And uh, we were just talking about your taste in music, Douglas, because, um, I don't know, do some people expect you as a writer to have to listen to classical music in the background to, to give you that sort of stimulation that you need? I think they do, yes. I, I, I think that they're a bit surprised that a, somebody who's been senior partner of a London law firm would, would, would like a lot of the music that I actually prefer listening to. I, I'm sorry to say that classical music has passed me by and the only time I went to an opera I fell asleep after about 10 minutes. How did you find the process of whittling your choices down to just five? Very, very difficult indeed. Um, I mean, I, I, I could take um, five of any number of different singers and, and, uh, and I, I was involved with one or two singers along the way and, and so I thought about them as well. But in the end, um, I tried to provide something that gives a, some insight and cross-section of my life. We're going to talk um, more in depth about your writing in just a moment, but just to to sort of finish up on your, your legal career, which has just taken you around the world, I mean, as you say, hugely influential in, in many areas. I'm, I'm always curious, talking uh, to people who've been in this profession, about what happens if you're asked to represent someone who, in your conscience, you think, I'm not sure I believe you. The, the starting point, uh, and I wasn't uh, predominantly a criminal lawyer, but the starting point is to, to warn them that they may not be believed. Uh, to say that my view doesn't count. In the end, if it's a criminal matter, it's for the judge or, or a jury if there's a jury. Um, I did have somebody who came in and said, look, I'm guilty as hell, but I want you to get me off. And I said, there's the door. Um, most most criminals are a bit more subtle than that <laughs> and uh, and try to, to pull the wool over people's eyes. Um, I felt that with some of the clients who were found guilty, the outcomes were correct. My task with the QC sometimes was to give them the best possible defense whether I thought they were guilty or not didn't come into it, so long as I didn't know they were guilty. We're on the Conister Rock today with the author Douglas Stewart. We'll be back in just a moment. The Nation Station, Manx Radio. Conister Rocks. And today we are with the author Douglas Stewart. And as we've mentioned earlier, it was the lack of anything interesting on the telly one Christmas, uh, which led to your first book, Case for Compensation. And I wonder, Douglas Stewart, if it was just inevitable that you were going to write roughly about what you knew about. Yes, I, I, I guess that most writers will say that they want to write about what they know about. But if they don't know, they can very quickly learn these days with the power of Google and Google Maps and all that sort of thing. But yes, it was inevitable. And I was very active in the law at the time, of course. And so the first story had a legal background. The first three books were all about a, a mythical uh, Bristol solicitor. Not at all modelled on me, but uh, he was um, quite good fun. But I killed him off after three books but not literally, just put him out to grass. Um, I, I was wondering whether you saw yourself as the hero of your books. No, not at all. Um, I, I, I tried to 
actively distance myself from the, the characters, actually. But um, there'll always be people who say, oh, we can see something of you in the books, and that would be right. I'd be very proud of that. But character-wise, no, I don't see it like that at all. What about people you know? Because undoubtedly you've garnered inspiration from the people you've met along the way. Would they recognise themselves? I think the funniest one was a, uh, uh, a client who was about five foot nothing and he, he looked like an egg. And he, I had a character in the book who was modelled on him who stood in a witness box and I said he was like an egg in an egg cup. And when this client said he wanted the book, I was terrified that he had recognised himself, but he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you remember the moment that you got the first letter from your publisher saying, yes, we want to take you on? I know exactly where I was, yes. Yes, it's one of those moments. Because, like most, most authors, there are a lot of rejections. I think I had 15. So it takes a lot of perseverance and editing and re-editing. But yes, it was a magical moment just to open it and say, we are going ahead with a book. And, uh, yeah, fantastic moment. Have you still got that letter? Do you know, I haven't. And I, that's because I've spent half my life moving around the world, back to America, Cyprus, Isle of Man, around England. So no, somewhere along the way it disappeared. Let's pause now for your fourth track. What have you chosen? <laughs> this 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 is Heartbreak Hotel by Elvis. I chosen it because I, I wasn't even allowed to mention the word Elvis Presley when I was a, a boy of about twelve when Elvis was starting his amazing career. My mother banned the words in my house. Uh, she said he was vulgar and, and uh, coarse. And so, Mum, sorry, but I'm going to play it, and you can rock and roll in your grave. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street, that heartbreak hotel where I'll be. I'll be just a lonely baby. Well, I'm so lonely. I'll be just so lonely. I could die. Although it's always crowded, you still can find some room for broken hearted lovers to cry there in the gloom. Be so, I'll be just a lonely baby. I'll be just a lonely, I'll be so lonely, I'll make a die. Keep flowing, the death clerk's dress in black. Well, they've been so long on the street, they'll never, they'll never look back and think it's so, think it's so lonely, baby. Well, they're so lonely, well, they're so lonely, they could die. Well, if your baby leaves you, you've got to tell the tale. Or just take a walk down the street to Heartbreak Hotel, where you will be. Just a lonely baby, but you'll be lonely. You'll be so lonely, you could die. Heartbreak Hotel, Elvis Presley, uh, Douglas Stewart has chosen that in almost defiance of not being able to mention Elvis's name <laughs> as a child. Um, Douglas, you, you say one of the great pleasures of being an author is meeting the readers. In fact, you, you describe them as the oxygen 
that writers need. You're doing a signing in Ramsey tomorrow morning, we should say. Uh, remind us of when that is. That's 11 o'clock at the Bridge Bookshop in Parliament Street, and uh, I'm really looking forward to being there and hopefully talking to quite a few people about my writing and uh, just getting to know them. It's a lovely feeling. And how often do, do your readers get in touch with you to give you their views on your latest work? Well, partly, of course, you get their views through um, Amazon and so on on the web these days. But yes, I get a, a tremendous amount of feedback. Uh, not always complimentary, but generally enough to, to, to keep me inspired to continue. Do you read all the reviews? I read all the ones that are in public, yes, yes. Um, and the, sometimes you want to get involved with a fight with them and, and challenge them, but you just let it go by. You can't please everybody. There is so much more to talk to you about. Um, I just want to cover a few things. You've had dinner in 10 Downing Street. In, yes, that was um, uh, with uh, when John Major was the Prime Minister, uh, and I had drinks with him, but uh, my wife and I had uh, dinner with Norma Major, his wife, and my wife ended up massaging Norma Major's back, which I thought was, took a bit of chutzpah, actually, that one, but uh, they both seemed to enjoy the experience. Well, I think there's a whole other programme in there, Douglas uh, <laughs> anyway. uh, You've also dined in Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle. Yes. Um, Charities open doors. The Spinal Injuries got me into Downing Street. The Lord's Tavernous Cricket Charity got me into Windsor Castle and Buckingham Palace. And Headway got me into Buckingham Palace to the Garden Party. And you also met Diana, Princess of Wales, on several occasions. Yes, that was. Um, she was very involved with Turning Point, which was a charity for uh, people with uh, youngsters with drug problems. But she was also active with uh, Headway as well. So, yes, I used to come across her. Um, you have family. I mean, they're, they're spread all over the place, really. Yes. Um, have any of them followed you into your career, both in, in the legal profession and in writing? No. Um, my younger son is a, has got some legal training, but neither wanted to become solicitors, and my young daughter has no intention of doing anything like that. That would be very boring, Dad. Um, so... Uh, one's in marketing in uh, Toronto and one works at Lord's Cricket Ground, which is a labour of love for him and um, suits him to a tee and me as well, because it means I can get to see him when I go down there. Yeah, you're a big fan of sport, especially Formula One. Yes, uh, I did some work with the Formula One racing drivers uh, back in the 90s uh, after the death of Ayrton Senna. I, I, I got involved for a while, so I got to know quite a few of them. There are they were a zany bunch. <laughs> um, we've mentioned the signing tomorrow, so uh, anybody who's interested in talking to you and uh, having their book signed can go to the Bridge Bookshop in Ramsey from 11. What are you currently working on at the moment? I'm just doing the, the final edits and playing around with a book called Deadline Vegas, which I hope to get out by the end of the year. Um, I've had uh, some very good friends uh, editing it. Um, that's not... not not the storyline, but the punctuation, the oh, spelling really? and the, the errors where somebody's name is Carol in one page and Caroline somewhere else. Things that, you, as the author, your eyes glaze over and you miss those when you're reading. Other people spot them and so it's been a, I've been very helped by um, a good friend on the island on that. And uh, so 
hopefully the wrinkles will be out and, and the book will be out on the shelves by the end of the year. And, and speaking of the characters in your book, I know some authors say they almost imagine the characters as friends, the characters almost speak to them. Is that how it happens for you? Oh, yes, very much so. The characters, um, they take on a life of their own as, as, the, as the plots develop. Uh, and um, there's, there's no question. And, of course, the power of the author is that the ones you don't like, you can make them very, very unpleasant and bump them off if need be as well and end them up in a... In a a, a pan of boiling water or something over them, whatever. It's great fun, actually. I love it. Can you ever meet people without sizing them up for possible book characters, I ask, hopefully? <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the lookout all the time, Beth. <laughs> uh, just finally, Douglas Stewart, it's been a real pleasure talking to you this afternoon. If anyone's listening and they thought, you know what, I've always wanted to write, there is a book in me somewhere, what advice would you have for them setting out on their journey? have the confidence and the determination to give it a try. And if it's going to be fiction, sure, try and think of that ending because it will make it far easier to finish it. And you've been here in the Isle of Man for nine years. Yes. Um, how does Manx life suit you in terms of inspiration? Not so much for inspiration, I don't think. I mean, the Isle of Man gets the mentions in the book almost in, in, inevitably somewhere. But I have found it been, it's been very, very good for having um, time to work in the early mornings and do the writing. The, my ideas are, are very global and the books are very global. So it's less the Isle of Man than the opportunities that I've had in my life to travel so widely. Douglas Stewart, what a pleasure it has been sharing this hour with you on the Conister Rock. Thank you so much for being with us. A reminder that that signing at the Bridge Bookshop is in Ramsey from 11 tomorrow. Uh, to play us out now, we're going to hear your fifth and final piece of music. What have you chosen and why? I've chosen Lara's theme from Dr Shivago. I was incredibly fortunate to be staying in a tiny hideaway in Spain when Julie Christie was at the height of her fame filming Shivago. And she asked me to dance, which was uh, one of those surreal moments, really, and because she was at the almost the height of her fame then, and uh, her amazing um, talent led her to a great career. So there was that memory, but my daughter is also called Lara, and uh, seemed very logical. Lara's theme. Douglas Stewart, thank you very much indeed.
Palmerston Rocks.